This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Idra Novi, a poet, literary translator, and author of the novel Ways to Disappear. She teaches in the creative writing program at Princeton University. Ways to Disappear tells the story of a Brazilian author's disappearance and her family and American translators search for her. Along the way, they piece together who this woman really is, as each only knows a part of her. And as much as their search is a tangible one, it is also about the intangibility of identity. We began the interview talking about Ijernovi's discovery that she was a writer. You know, it sounds a little crazy, but I found... uh poems I had written when I must have been in middle school where I was imitating some Emily Dickinson poems that we had studied at school. And um, I was a V.C. Andrews addict when I was in high school. And I did some terrible writing at V.C. Andrews inspired writing then. And I wrote a play in high school. But I think in college, I decided if I had to write and I knew I had to write that I should do something practical with it. And so all through college, I I worked as a journalist um, and I did community journalism with a magazine called City Limits, which sort of covers the nonprofit world in New York. And then when I moved to Chile, I um, after graduation, I moved to Chile and I worked for Santiago Times, which was the English language newspaper there. Uh, and I would translate articles from the Spanish language newspaper into English. I, I, so so I, I did journalism for a long time because I thought that was a, a viable way to you know, do something with my interest in writing. But I wasn't ever interested in factual truth. I was interested in emotional truth. And so I ran into problems with my editors over and over again because uh, one editor at the, at the City Limits magazine said, well, why you spend half the article describing the dust on the floor about the housing, um, housing court where I was watching the cases? And I thought that to understand the housing court, you really had to study the dust on the floor. And he seemed to think that I should be listing how many cases they had covered that day. I mean, can you imagine? So <laughs> I knew I needed to get out of journalism, I think. And, and what about the language aspect? You're also a translator. How did you come to studying foreign languages? When I lived abroad, um, I fell into translation because I would read things and in Spanish. And I just was so moved by them that I wanted to read them in my own language and share them with people who hadn't read them before. It was a, so translation, I think, often comes from that impulse of saying, wow, this is such a crime. This isn't in English. And I want to share it with my friend. I want to share it with, you know, with other readers. And, and I think that usually the urgency to translate is because you're so overwhelmed by how exciting something is that you want to share it with other readers. And I think that was sort of how I fell into that. It was more out of my reader impulse. Well, your novel, which is called Ways to Disappear, is about the disappearance of a famous author in Brazil. Her name is Beatriz. How do you say it in Portuguese? Beatriz. (laughs) Yeah, Beatriz. Emma, her translator, comes from Pennsylvania to go look for her when she turns up missing. So tell me about the title and then the impetus for this particular story. Well, I, uh, Ways to Disappear, I came up with the title pretty early, and I really knew that it was a, referred to the translator and to the author, that translators have ways that they disappear, and that the author, as both a mother and a writer, had ways that 
they disappear. But it ended up over the course of the book taking on other meanings for the other characters as well in the book and unexpected meanings for the author and the translator. As I, got, as I got deeper into the book, I saw more ways. And I think that that can be a great thing for a novel if you have a title in mind early and you can kind of write your way toward it as you go and surprise yourself with new kinds of meaning that, that it takes on. Because about halfway through the book, I thought that the book, you know, was about the ways that you disappear, but it also was in a way um, something that Leslie Jameson hit on when she read the book and, and sent a quote for it, about the ways that we do appear to each other and how we only appear in slivers. And, you know, you may know somebody as a colleague or as a writer or as a friend, but you don't know who they are when they're online. For example, you don't know if they're playing poker as my character's doing instead of doing what she usually does or who they are when they're out on the street alone. You don't know. And so I, I kind of, the whole book became this meditation on how we know only a sliver of a person. And then when they disappear, you're stuck with this whole silhouette and you have to fill in everything beyond that one sliver you knew. Your main character, Emma, is a translator and you obviously have personal experience with that about how not only translating, but in this book, um, Beatrice, her editor, has a role in it too because he changed some of her language in her books and actually edited them quite a bit. And I'm wondering about that relationship between editing and translating and identity and the things that we think are solid are not. Yeah, I, I think that the way books happen, we, we think it's only the author, you know, and it's a standalone thing, but it really does take a team. And, um, you know, with a translator there bringing their sensibility to it. And when, you know, if you work with an editor, the editor's sensibility is there. And there's all these other people who are involved. And then the design of the cover and the interior design of a book, there's all these other people's sensibilities that are part of the creation of, of that book. It's not just you know, the author alone. And I think having been part of the team of those other people who are creating the book that we experience, um, that I was interested in exploring who those people are and um, what happens when the author disappears. Do you think identity has any solidity? I hope not. I hope to always have a fluid identity. I think that's what makes life um, surprising. And, uh, and, and if you live your life trying to keep your identity solid as opposed to see the ways it's fluid that you, um, you might, you know, limit yourself from, you know, you know, dripping into some new situation that would actually bring things into your life that, that, that would be really meaningful. Do you think that concept is scary? Well, I think every time you learn a language, you kind of get a chance to kind of pour yourself into a new picture or pour yourself into a new vessel because a language has a personality, it has a cadence, it has a music to it, it has a tone. And when you become a person in another language, obviously you're still you, but you're expressing yourself in a new way. And um, I think there's something really liberating about that. And I've noticed that I've known a lot of, know a lot of people as they reach a certain age in middle age where they start studying another language. I don't know if you've known, do you know a lot of people like they reach a certain age and like, oh, I got Rosetta Stone or I'm learning this language or I always wanted to learn this. And I keep running into people. And I do think that the desire to learn a new language is in some way a desire to be fluid as in your identity, to, to try on a new voice. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Idra Novi, author of the novel Ways to Disappear. Do you feel like having another language allows you to express yourself more fully? I think it allows you so, allows you to express yourself newly. You get to sp- express yourself in a new way. Because I don't know if there's any way to express yourself fully. I think in any given moment, you're, you are just a sliver of who you might be in another moment. The kind of conversation I would have first thing in the morning is not what I would have at 7.30 at night. Um, and it's not what I would have if I were speaking to you in Spanish or in Portuguese. And, and I love how liberating that is. You know, if I, I speak Spanish at home with my family and so... Um, I'll be, you know, teaching all day in English and then I come home and I switch into Spanish and in a way it's also switching into, um, a different, a different personality, the personality of who I am when I'm at home with my family by switching languages, I think is part of that code switch. So I'm wondering for your main character, Emma, who we see very briefly in the beginning in Pennsylvania. And then when her author turns up missing, she just gets on a plane to go. And she feels so incredibly intimate with Beatrice because she's translated so much. And she feels like she, I think she kind of feels like she does know her completely when she goes over there. Can you talk about her experience of going over there and meeting her family who are one of them her 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 daughter is resentful to Emma for coming and and thinks that she doesn't know Beatrice at all about how how you you know your identity and shifting languages and and Emma's experience well the book is very much a you know has this noir aspect and there's an adventure aspect to the book but I think you know I kind of saw the plot of the book as kind of this tight rope you know, almost like a laundry line. And that once you have, uh, you know, somebody who's missing and you have this taut line, then you can hang all of your ideas on it because you have this, you know, this chase, this search that sort of keeps the book moving. For Emma, Beatrice, in a way, is someone that she wrote, she translated these books into English. And at the same time, she was creating a character in her head of who the author was. And it was both Beatrice who she knew, but it was also the author that she in her head had come to believe was the one who wrote the words that she was translating. And she says early on in the book that she kind of didn't even think about the fact that Beatrice had children until she met them. And obviously, you know, if Beatrice was a single mother living in Rio de Janeiro, raising two children, her children are a big part of her life. And so then already, you know, from the outset that the translator only knows a sliver of who she is. And she doesn't know about her author's poker addiction either. So, you know, she's, she's definitely operating on a, on a, you know, partial, partial knowledge of about who her author is. I'm curious as you're talking about the way that you live your life, that these emotions carry over in different languages in the act of translation, because if you look up a dictionary definition of translation, it would probably say it's the direct correspondence between a word in one language and the other. So body would be cuerpo in Spanish, and that's it. And so translating seems like it's just an act where you go through a book and you have a dictionary and you just translate it word for word, but it's not. And so how do you learn the emotions of a language and make these choices of how you want to translate it? And then we'll talk a little bit more about that in the book. Well, I, I, I came across a number of novels that had translator characters in them and a lot of the translators were inhibited and they, they weren't adventurous and, and they almost had a 
cling on to, you know, um, a wild writer to have a wilder life. And, um, but I think there's a wildness in translation. And I think that there's that space that there is no direct move because actually the truth is in translation, you translate in units of meaning. And you're also, when you're translating literature, the difference between literature and everything else is subtext. So you're always translating the sentence, but you're also having to translate the subtext. You have to translate what goes unsaid. And that's a wild task. It's an art. And I found that the novels that I kept coming across about translators weren't really exploring the joy and the wildness of translation the way that I had experienced it. And so I think as it happens with many writers, I wrote the novel I couldn't find. And I couldn't find a novel that, um, you know, conveyed uh, the adventure of translation and the way that I had experienced it. So I just, I, I wrote that novel, the one I couldn't find. I think that was sort of why I felt that the, this, that I couldn't stop working on this book. There's a mention in the book of translators being on trial. I mean, is translating, can it be seen as a crime? It certainly has been, you know, especially uh, translators who um, have translated religious texts, Bible translators who've been burned at the stake, translators of the Quran. I think uh, it is definitely risky business to translate religious texts. And, um, they often disappear. And in fact, the only translators that sort of go down in history are often the ones um, who were treated for crimes. And um, like women writers often disappear unless they sort of have a violent or, you know, unexpected death. And I think the book in many ways is about the way that women writers disappear as much as it is about the way that translators disappear. And I kind of was, as both a woman writer and a translator, I I'm aware of the long tradition of women writers and translators disappearing from the official record. It's, um, it's a weighty, weighty long history. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Idra Novi, author of the novel Ways to Disappear. This interview was recorded on Skype. Well, in, in your novel, there was a point where Beatrice had written the line at the close of her story and she had written technically what a man will deny himself until he won't and Emma had thought can't makes more sense than won't and just for um for her it was capturing the boldness and Brazilian spirit of the sentence and when she had we find out also when she had originally wrote it that her editor had changed the can't to won't can you talk about that as a as a crime or or what it meant to you to include that in your plot? You know, I worked on that for a long time because I think so many of the books that I came across often focused on translators' errors as opposed to translators' instincts. And I think that it is an art, and art is definitely instinct-driven, and that often translators, Borges said this, often improved it, can improve a book. And I think that translators often do. And um, there's lots of examples of that. And uh, I, I think that that, for me, was something I wanted to portray in the book, was how you can take a book and draw on not only your instincts of the book as a, in a writerly way, as much as you do on your actual knowledge of the language. So if you were translating it, would you put it as won't or can't? Oh, can't, for sure. (laughs) 
So when you write this book, it has, you know, sprinkled throughout as as many books that take place in another culture do, there are Portuguese words. And this is a, a book about translation. So how did you decide which words that you wanted to leave in Portuguese? I think that was a pretty easy call because I've translated a number of books from Portuguese. And, and I think the general rule is, is that you leave a word in if there isn't an equivalent word in English. So as I was writing the novel, I, I've already written, in, you know, as a translator, a number of books where there was dialogue that was happening in Portuguese and I could hear it in my head in Portuguese and I needed to recreate the cadence of it in English. And um, I also have done that for books I've translated from Spanish. And so I found it, I felt, I felt that was actually not, that wasn't too challenging because I think I had already had experience in conveying something happening in Portuguese in English. And I think that in many ways it was a great background for this novel was to have already written, you know, um, about Brazil as a translator and then to, to, to then bring in my own story. I had already thought quite a bit about how to, how to capture Brazil in English. I had thought about how, how to make Brazil come alive in English as a translator. And so then when I got to write my own novel about Brazil, I had already thought through a lot of those questions. Well, one of my favorite aspects of the novel was that when Emma got over there and she found out that there was this, you know, money lender after Beatrice because she had like $600,000 worth of gambling debt and his name was Flamenguinho. And he was like, sure, that if Emma just translated the next book, she'd get half a million. And really, she got $500 a book. Because that's reality. <laughs> that's all you get. <laughs> I loved his, I, I just loved his certainty about it. Like, he, he was certain. But to me, it also showed something between the Brazilian and the American sensibility. Well, that was something I had a lot of fun uh, playing with in the novel, was these misunderstandings between you know, Brazilians and Americans, um, and how they, the assumptions that they make about what's easy in another country. Um, and also I, I was interested in writing about sort of the sexual dynamic between, uh, Emma and, you know, her author's son and, and, and what happens, um, when you have, you know, this inner American relationship, you know, and she's bringing her American assumptions and she's also imposing some assumptions on to Marcus about how quickly he's going to try to get her into bed. And then he's, you know, making his, his assumptions about her. So I, I think, you know, that their relationship became kind of a way to explore these inner American misunderstandings, which I've experienced, um, all my life. So I, I was, uh, I was, it was, it was a great place in the novel to sort of look at how those play out between two people. One of the things about sort of the differences in like the Brazilian and the American outlook is also the moral difference that you can hold when you hold opinions, but then they're put into reality. And, and what I mean is that Rocha, is that how you say it? Rocha. Rocha, who is the editor is wealthy. He has family wealth and he is a moral person. He seems to be a liberal person and he abhors the way that Brazil operates with, you know, paying bribes and that sort of thing. But then when it comes to his doorstep, because he's asked to pay bribes for Beatrice's son when he's kidnapped, but then people he loves is threatened. And you have a passage where you talk about that and the ease of having a moral until it comes to your, to your doorstep. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that that is often the case that, um, 
we all have these um, notions of ourselves as knowing the difference between right and wrong and that we think that, you know, when it comes down to it, we will take the moral high road and maybe we are a little self-congratulatory about that. But actually, when you're in a desperate situation, that's not always the case. You know, and um, I I was interested in all of us exploring that of how you have a notion of yourself. And when you're in a comfortable, safe position and you're just commenting on the world on Facebook, it's easy to sort of take the moral high road. But when it's actually happening to you and your life's threatened, you know, you don't really, none of us really know how we'll behave. And I think that um, came a little bit from, I taught in um, the prison system for a number of years with the Barred Prison Initiative. And I was aware of how, um, people often thought, you know, the people in prison were sort of one kind of American and people who weren't in prison were the other. And I was like, well, but you don't know what you would do until you are in a really threatening situation. You know, what would you do? And um, so I was, I was interested in looking at that slippery slope, that slippery slope that, that we all confront with our morals, depending on how threatened, how threatened we feel. So tell me about your inspiration. Can you read a passage from something that inspired you and helped you as a writer? I am an ardent fan of Alessandra Barrico's novel, Silk, um, which was made into a movie at one point and was an international bestseller, but is a slim riddle of a novel. And um, it begins, um, it had all the chapters in the book are a paragraph long. They're just these tiny, exquisite sections. Um, and I looked back at this book often while I was writing because in Silk, he, he, he covers centuries, but the, the sections all happen in, in these compact sections. So this is the first page of the book of Silk from um, Alessandro Barrico. He's an Italian writer. Although his father had pictured for him a brilliant future in the army, Hervé Jeancourt had ended up earning his crust in an unusual career, which, by a singular piece of irony, was not unconnected with the charming side that bestowed on it a vaguely feminine intonation. Hervé Jeancourt bought and sold silkworms for a living. The year was 1861, Flaubert was writing Salambo, electric light remained hypothetical, and Abraham Lincoln, beyond the ocean, was fighting a war of which he would not see the finish. Hervé Jeancourt was 32. He bought and sold silkworms. It's just exquisite. You know, it's this short section, but he tells you everything happening in the world. And he tells you what this one man is doing in that, you know, global context. And there's nothing extra. And yet everything is there. Can you read something that you wrote that was maybe tricky to write or changed a lot from the first draft? I had a very hard time. Um, well, it wasn't, I didn't have a hard time. I just was unsure about where to, to end the book. And, um, and it took me a long time to get the, the very last paragraph, um, which I don't think would give too much away. <laughs> Maybe it would. This is, the, this is the very last paragraph of the book, which I really wanted because I know people turn to the last paragraph in a book. And I wanted to write a last paragraph that if you did flip ahead and get to it, you wouldn't actually know everything that came before it and that the journey of the book would still be necessary, you know. Um, so this is the last paragraph. Already the bathers on the beach had begun to look around, to wonder who would be the first to get up and approach her and with what question. As for those who remained under their umbrellas, might the stranger come to haunt them anyway? Might they wake in the night and discover foam around their ankles to find that they were entering the ocean with this unknown woman in their sleep? So tell me about that. 
The novel kind of begins with a dream state and I kind of wanted it to end in a dream state and have lots of violence and suspense and reality in between. Because I think that's how our days are, you know? You kind of go from dream to reality to dream. And I think there should be room in fiction for all of it. Where do you write? I write on my uh, living room couch, usually starting around 5.30 a.m. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I wish um, I had that problem of getting away from writing. In general, I find that it's more getting to the writing that between work and meals and children and house guests who are often sleeping on my couch, which means I can't write on it, um, there are enough obstacles that I, I don't feel like I need to get away from it so much as I need to get to it. And who do you show your work first to get feedback? I have a number of close friends who I turn to at different points in, 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 in the draft of a book. Um, some who are great readers for the early draft and some who are great readers for the sort of polishing kind of edits that happen later. So um, I, by now I, I, I know who they are. And how have you dealt with rejection? I find it helpful to read a book that I really, really admire and remember what I'm in it for. That I'm in it for thinking about language and for the excitement of coming up with something that's really meaningful. And whenever I get back to reading and I get back to writing on something that's really meaningful to me, the rejection, I, you realize how, how unimportant it is because it's about the writing. And that as long as you're doing the best writing you can do and you know taking the most important risks that you can take, rejection or no rejection is, um, almost becomes beside the point. And what is your favorite word? I would say in English, it would be the word ever. Um, as I know several different languages, I've never come across any word like the English word ever. You know, it's kind of this fist of a word. You can use it to end a conversation, but you can also use it to, to make it as a gesture, as in would you ever consider? Um, and so it can mean once or it can mean always. Um, and so I kind of like how it can mean those opposite opposite things, depending on how you, what kind of emphasis you give to it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Idra Novi, a literary translator and author of the novel Ways to Disappear. This interview was recorded on Skype. The First Draft music was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.